I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming AF events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. Last week, my teaching partner, Simon Henley, and I took our students from the Kingston School of Art on a field trip to Los Angeles. In addition to setting out on a pilgrimage of buildings by the likes of Rudolf Schindler, Richard Neutra, Louis Kahn and Frank Gehry, we were lucky enough to speak with two luminaries of contemporary LA architecture, the architect Michael Maltzen and the writer Jeff Mania. This week features my conversation with Maltzen, who, after completing his studies at the Harvard GSD, moved to Los Angeles in 1988, where he worked for Frank Gehry before founding his own practice in 1995. Our group met with Maltzen at his office in Silver Lake, where we talked about, among other things, his love for Los Angeles, and the possibilities the city affords for novel architecture, and his turn away from historical reference and towards contemporary art in establishing his forward-facing practice. We also talked about the speculative role that Maltzen's work plays in eschewing the status quo and fitting in instead to a future vision of the city. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. No, so this is a new format. <coughs> also, Simon's my boss, alongside, alongside being my teaching partner. So the different layers of, uh, of pressure and anxiety. Not actually, though. <laughs> um, no, so I mean, um, it's a, again, it's a casual conversation. I'll keep saying that to reassure myself that it's nothing more than that. But um, I guess as a way of contextualizing the discussion for the students, um, what I was saying was, for me, there's been a long-standing interest and excitement around the work um, and the way the practice is, has distinguished itself from other North American architects. And then learning more about um, the work you do recently, uh, realizing how, um, how focused uh, you are on the city of Los Angeles and how much of an interest you take in LA um, as a kind of catalyst for the work itself. And I wondered if we could start by understanding that fascination, given that you grew up in Levittown in, uh, you know, on the other side of the continent. Um, so maybe you could just kind of walk us through uh, how you first fell in love with LA. I came uh, to Los Angeles for the first time uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, I had a studio with a uh, professor, Robert Mangorian, uh, when I was at the GSD. And uh, it was, the studio was to uh, design the Getty, 
um, which hadn't been built yet. It gives you a little bit of a sense of of the timing. Uh, we came out for for one of those uh, typical seven eight day studio visits, uh, and I immediately uh, was fascinated by the city, and I felt incredibly comfortable here in the sense that. I felt like I, I somehow implicitly understood the city. And for a long time, I thought it felt familiar because, uh, probably because I watched a lot of TV when I was a kid, and it's always the backdrop for a lot of those shows. Um, but I realized over time that growing up in a place like Levittown, uh, it was it had many of the same structures as Los Angeles. They're both... Uh, for the most part, post-war suburbs. And uh, that idea that, that that kind of a place could grow to the scale of a metropolis, um, one was, was interesting personally, but it's also a city that it's very clear as you drive around, uh, admits almost anything uh, from a an architecture and building and landscape standpoint. Uh, and because of that, it felt like it would be a very possible place to be a young architect trying to uh, uh, understand their uh, idea about architecture. Uh, and that, I think, that initial... Uh, feeling about the city has it's never gone away for me it continues to be a place that changes my understanding of it continues to evolve uh, there's always something happening um, that makes you question how cities uh, might work and continue to evolve and uh, it, it's been a it's been an extraordinary laboratory to to do work yeah, I've, I've read you describe the city that way before, as a laboratory, or the architect is both the experimenter and the subject. And I wonder to what degree the city started acting on you as an architect as you started practicing here, or to what degree the city began to influence the work you were doing, as opposed to you doing the experiment. I'm not sure that uh, there's, a, there's a distinct point in my career where that, uh, where I ever, I, I ever felt like, okay, it's changed from one thing to another. Um, but uh, it's, it, it, I think it's impossible to work here and not uh, begin to feel that uh, things can be made here um, in ways that Maybe they, they're more difficult to make in other places. And I know that because we work in a lot of other places as well. And there's a difference between uh, trying to bring a form into, into the world here and in other places. And it's, uh, there are a lot of parts of that. It's as much cultural as it is physical. Um, uh, but there is a difference here. And... I, I, I think that has, that has to do with, that, that's part of it, um, is the sense that uh, you can challenge the work here 
and there's almost an expectation that you will and that you can have a conversation around um, why something that looks uh, that looks different um, from the things around it or what's come before it uh, that there is value in, in ideas about that. So yesterday we visited the Star Apartments in Skid Row and we're just able to walk around the outside but there's so much I think to be gleaned from its outward appearance and uh, that building alone was so experimental to us and um, so ambitious in the experiments or the hypotheses it was testing about uh, what constitutes a public realm. Um, and I mean, looking at that building in particular and a lot of the other work you've done, um, so much of it is speculation, but realized somehow. So typically in architecture, we speculate and then the work itself is a kind of, is a kind of realization of an outcome or has a sense of completeness to it or a kind of smug sense of reality to it that a project like the Star Apartments doesn't seem to have. It seems like it's still speculating about how we could live or how we could relate to each other or how the people that live there could relate to the city. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about the ideas that you were um, looking at with that project. Yeah, Star, uh, we've, we've done a number of projects and we continue to do work for uh, the Skidrow Housing Trust, which is a nonprofit developer uh, who is focused on uh, building permanent supportive housing for uh, formerly homeless individuals. Um, the, we've continued to evolve the model uh, with each successive building, but uh, STAR probably, I, I think it's, it's, it's correct to say that that was the most um, speculative, most adventurous, most experimental of all of, all of the buildings. That building is, in my mind, as much a microcosm in its intention of an idea about the city as it is uh, an idea about architecture. And I, that idea of architecture as a, uh, as a f in, that a single building can begin to point to, uh, infer, speculate about the city, uh, I think is one of the uh, extremely powerful capabilities of architecture. Too often uh, over the history of architecture, uh, it seems like ideas about urbanism have been more in the realm of urban design, urban planning. Uh, but one of the extraordinary things about, about architecture is it can hold a kind of complexity um, that, uh, that does point to how you might uh, think about um, uh, imagining a new vision of, of, of urbanism. I'm just making sure that this is recording. I always have these... Uh, the panic? Yeah. All right. Um, so, can we go back to one for? Uh, I, I just wanted you asked me actually a piece of a part of your question about Star. I don't feel like I answered, Please. which was some of the specific, mm -hmm. almost mechanisms around uh, where 
we saw uh, the building starting to point to ideas about the city or, or, or urbanism. Uh, there were there were a series of, of uh, three or four very distinct ambitions we had uh, to explore. One was to reuse an existing building, a one-story building, um, which in a city like Los Angeles which, uh, that has mostly made uh, its um, uh, development by tearing whatever is down because most things, you know, one-story building generally doesn't, most people don't think of it as having an awful lot of value. It was a old um, uh, retail building. Uh, preserving that building uh, and keeping that piece of fabric and then building on top of it uh, certainly pointed to um, issues around sustainability and reuse of buildings, but also keeping uh, fabric in a disposable city. Uh, and that, uh, that was a very, um, people really questioned that. Why would you want to keep that, that building? The second uh, part was uh, to try to create a kind of hyperdensity. That may be uh, more normal in other very dense cities. I mean, for instance, uh, that project and its density wouldn't be necessarily unusual in Tokyo. But in a city in, like Los Angeles, that, where the idea about uh, residential living is really the single-family house, suburban uh, house, creating uh, that much density on that small a site um, was a very uh, aggressive idea. And then the third thing was uh, uh, to um, try to uh, use a new technology, uh, multifamily prefabrication, in a city where that wasn't um, allowed. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We don't need to go into that. But, but you weren't able to do, uh, from a code standpoint, uh, multifamily prefabrication. And part of the architecture was to create a pathway, uh, a pilot program, a speculative program, with the city to allow this to be a test case um, for that to take place, which had all sorts of ambitions around um, uh, trying to get more housing uh, built more quickly, uh, doing it uh, in a more sustainable way um, to help to create that density on a site where it was very difficult to build in conventional ways. So there were pieces of, of um, I, what I would consider ideas of, of, of trying to uh, show how you could build housing in different ways in this city um, that had material effects uh, in the building itself. I think a lot of the buildings, they seem to be anticipating a future that hasn't yet happened, but is well on, on its way to happening. Especially this idea about reusing existing buildings, which is so much a kind of standard of London architecture, where we're coming from. Um, that, you know, reuse and infill projects uh, are the kind of the bread and butter of a lot of architects in London. Whereas here in Los Angeles, where, you know, the city seems to start to be feeling the limits of sprawl, but still there's so much land apparently to work with. Uh, there is a lot of land uh, in a way, if you look around even where the office is, you can, uh, the San Gabriel Mountains and the desert beyond that. But 
this is a very important point about a city like Los Angeles, and I think it, it relates to ideas about cities around the world, and that is, as an architect, uh, uh, understanding what the larger picture is of the future of a city. And in LA, uh, there is a history, its long history of development has been uh, constantly pushing the perimeter of the city further and further out. And that's been possible because there was that land out there. I've referred to it as a kind of manifest destiny-like um, uh, move to the, to the far horizon. But over time, and especially uh, in the last 10 years, you can feel that that perimeter, in a sense, the edges of that perimeter have been hit, have been reached. And it's not that there's not more land out there, but both physically, uh, in terms of feeling like you're still uh, connected to the city, um, that you can make the commute to work in the center of the city, or you can take advantage of what's happening culturally. Uh, uh, you, beyond this perimeter that's been hit, you're really in a different city, you're in a different place, you're in a different part of the state. The second part of that is the psychological part, which is uh, that uh, how, do you, how do you feel connected to the culture uh, of uh, the identity of, of a place like Los Angeles when you live so far away that you're really not a part of that. That, that all plays into, uh, into the urbanism of the city and what has started to happen is that you can see that people are much more interested in living closer into the multiple centers of the city. The developers are more interested in building uh, uh, in the centers of these cities. And there are more and more people coming to Los Angeles. It's pushing density um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of extreme way. And that uh, is changing uh, how literally we think about Los Angeles. Uh, it's putting pressure on, on having to develop new forms of, of living here that didn't exist before. For instance, multifamily housing. This was a city that uh, just built single-family housing, and that's in everybody's minds. When people think about about uh, where they want to live and how they want to live, if you live in Los Angeles, you still have this idea of living in a single-family house with a connection to the outside. So then the question is, if you're building multifamily housing because it's necessary, do you merely import models from other cities? Uh, or, I think, more uh, usefully, do you begin to speculate about how you build higher le levels of density, but still connect to those ambitions and hopes and dreams of the people who are going to be living here who have a different uh, vision of, of um, what a house or, or uh, their lifestyle should be. That, that's the place where you can, if, you, if you're willing to jump into that question, uh, there's the responsibility and the need to try to uh, invent something that, uh, or evolve something at the very least, uh, so that it's a, it's a different model. It, it talks to how the city is moving 
uh, tries to point to where the city is, is evolving as opposed to uh, connecting to maybe a more romantic idea of, of, of the past. Mm. So there's two streams I want to follow in response to that. One is about your relationship to history um, and your education, um, which, as I understand it, um, was very interested in historical revival and postmodernism. Mm -hmm. And then the other part, which maybe we could kind of touch on first, is uh, a project that seems to be doing this kind of um, work you're describing of conjuring up a new type of building that is not an import from another place, not, necessar not necessarily a kind of historical um, reference, um, but instead is something altogether different. Uh, and it's the One Santa Fe project, uh, which you guys aren't familiar with yet. Um, but when you see it, and maybe we'll drive past it at some point, uh, it's this astounding quarter mile long housing project, uh, incredibly dense, and at some points elevated uh, above the ground, similarly to the star apartments in some ways. Um, but to me, it looks more like some kind of ship <laughs> or some kind of um, thing that is touched down lightly on the earth and may take off again at some point. But density, density is the main driver, and it's also near uh, a railway and a kind of industrial. Well, it's in, it's, in that sense, it's an unusual uh, site, but probably, uh, or has, is a site that would have been seen as unusual in the past, but I think is, is becoming more and more, uh, probably uh, a, a more normal type of site um, for development in the future, and not only LA, but in other cities. And that is that, uh, it's uh, this extremely long um, slip of, of space that was uh, left over between uh, where the rail lines came in to the city, both at the time, the passenger rail lines, the turn of the uh, uh, 19th, 19th to 20th century, and the freight line, uh, lines that still uh, exist there. Um, most people, you would never have known that there was a site there because it just looked like the uh, the, the large avenues, uh, Santa Fe, um, named after a railroad, uh, was just was wide uh, uh, and had this this very ambiguous uh, series of fringes. But there was a site there um, that is importantly uh, at a kind of edge or a threshold between uh, downtown, the arts district, uh, these rail lines, the river, which is becoming more and more a part of the urban conversation in the city, and eventually um, East LA and Boyle Heights, which um, socially, culturally, politically um, is a very charged area, the, really one of the, the hearts of uh, Latino, Latina um, life in, in the city. Um, social political life. So it, it's, uh, it's starting to manifest um, uh, this, this line or seam or edge, uh, which 
if you look at Los Angeles as a city of many, many districts and largely siloized communities, often the lines between those communities are quite indistinct. They're very real, but you don't see them because they're not so much physical. One Santa Fe is, in a way, starting to give form uh, to, those, to those edges. But as opposed to being a wall or a barrier, uh, uh, is trying to make that a line that you occupy, that you live in, and that creates connections from one side to another. So it's a marginal strip of land, and at the urban scale is a, is a kind of scene between different demographic spaces and also different programs of space. And I mean, going back to the star again, there's a kind of seam at play there between, and the level between the commercial plinth and the residential uh, above. And I guess this is where this play with scale or this assertion that a building can comment on or embody the attributes of a city um, and its various juxtapositions and, and discordances and kind of manifest that kind of seam um, as an experience plays out a bit. Well, there was a funny drawing that, that was made of that building where we tipped the building up on its end and it, we showed it in the context of a lot of other skyscrapers around the world. And it, at one point it was, would have been, I don't know, fifth or sixth tallest building in the world if we had, had done that. But what we were trying to get at was that uh, how you build at scale in the city especially in a city like Los Angeles, can be reimagined maybe as simply as uh, thinking about the difference between the vertical uh, and the horizontal. And if you, if you accept Los Angeles as a, as a actually quite dense but very low-scale horizontal city, um, as you start to build on top of it, one idea that we've had uh, I've been interested in, is is it possible to uh, uh, to begin to layer in a, almost a kind of palimpsest-like way um, new levels of urbanism on top of each other so that you're not, again, completely scraping clean what came before it and also still building in within a lot of the... Um, uh, typical means and methods of building that uh, have built this horizontal city. For instance, that building on Santa Fe is actually uh, mostly wood construction, wood stick-built construction in the same way that all of those suburban houses are built. And we can do that by not going up beyond about six stories, um, and it's still logistically, from a code possibilities, uh, 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 feasible. Um, star Apartments uh, has a very similar ambition in, in, in creating this layered horizontal urbanism. And that deck space, which is the real social space at the second level, starts to connect to, out to all of these other, when you're up there, um, these other roofs uh, of the buildings in the district around it. And um, I have this, I guess it's a fantasy that uh, that mid-layer, that kind of semi-public layer, uh, could become more consistent, uh, could develop in other parts of, of the city, so that you're 
uh, also creating this layered public realm, uh, not only private realm, but, but public realm. One of the things about uh, One Santa Fe, and you mentioned it, was its scale, um, which is a, a tool that I think architects too often don't use um, or don't consciously use uh, for some of its capabilities. We talk about scale all the time as architects, uh, mostly about intimate scale, how does uh, scale relate to the individual, but we don't necessarily talk about ranges of scales uh, for architecture and how that affects urbanism or how it, it, it positively blurs the um, relationship between architecture and urbanism. When we built One Santa Fe, or even when it was, we first proposed that, pro that project was, was going through all of its entitlements, uh, a lot of people said that the building was out of scale. And there was a lot of criticism of that building. I heard a lot of that criticism, uh, that it was too big for that neighborhood. And on the one hand, if you believe that uh, a city like Los Angeles and that district is going to stay the way that it is forever, then that criticism, they're probably right. It is too big for that neighborhood, given what's existing there. But I think it's important to try to anticipate uh, the city um, in the future, 25 years, 50 years, to speculate about um, how scale and density and development is going to change in the city. Because architecture not only takes a long time to eventually get built, uh, but it exists for a long time as well. And it's very likely that if you try to build a building that relates to uh, a, a, a rapidly changing context and you try to relate to it today, by the time it's built, it's already uh, out of scale. It's already, um, uh, it's already a part of the past. Mm -hmm. And that idea that we as architects have responsibilities to try to meet the scale or meet relationships or meet the context in the future is something at times that is very difficult to talk about because you are um, trying to describe uh, and anticipate a speculative uh, vision of the city. But I think it's incumbent on what we do. Just further to this point about speculation, and I guess as an architect, putting yourself in the position of speculation through practice, as opposed to paper architecture, for example, or fiction, or the, the more kind of radical but um, um, hypothetical work that some architects would be drawn to. To me, what's interesting is the work, the built work itself is a speculation. Um, 
And then the question is, well, how do you, how do you push yourself to think that way? Um, especially coming out of the kind of um, cultural context that you were coming from as a student in the 1980s. Yeah. And so to kind of, to kind of situate the, um, what was being taught, I guess, when you were a student, there was a lot of interest in the past. Is that fair to say? Uh, there was, but yeah, well, there was. And then, so what I've read that um, you, know, uh, you were drawn to in light of that was um, instead of looking back at classical history, which you kind of thought had nothing to do with contemporary existence, you turned more to art mm -hmm. to try and find a direction forward. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk about what art meant to you then or what it means to you now and how it helps you potentially... Um, take on this more speculative mindset in the work you do? Um, well, at that moment, this was really the, the early 1980s, uh, there, was, there was a debate, at least in the, um, in the critical and theoretical writings and, and um, conversations in architecture. And it was between the people interested in whether modernism still had life uh, and the postmodernists, especially the European, uh, more classically focused postmodernists, um, who were uh, in a sense trying to, this is really boiling the argument down, but uh, trying to um, reinvigorate, uh, truly re reinvigorate uh, visions of past architecture and planning um, space and form uh, as an antidote to what they saw as um, the deficiencies of, of modernism. Um, but it wasn't clear necessarily what side was going to win. The only thing that was clear was that there was something, it felt like there was something at stake. It felt like architecture was at stake. And that was a fantastic moment as confusing as it was to be a student because it felt like you had your, even your studio projects had some piece of that, uh, that debate. And that's a very powerful, uh, that's a very powerful thing to feel as a student that um, the work that you're doing, uh, it, it, has, it, it has some meaning, it has um, implications. I don't think that ever, uh, I don't think that's ever left for me uh, in the work that we're doing. So that context was was very important uh, as a as a really as a launching point. I didn't feel like either side of that debate was necessarily getting at the things that I was interested in, especially around urbanism. Uh, I was I felt very. Um, I felt very close to a lot of uh, the uh, forms and the um, the uh, the radicalness of a lot of the modernist forms. Um, I also felt that some of the criticism of the postmodernists uh, was was true that um, that the idea of how uh, somebody experienced uh, architecture or experienced the city um, 
in a, in a palpable, almost emotional way, was something that had uh, really lost its um, a part. It, it wasn't a part of the modernist conversation. Uh, there were artists who I felt, um, because they weren't doing architecture, because it wasn't architecture, um, there were artists I felt like I could, I could interpret in my own way for my own purposes. Uh, and um, you could begin to see if there was a way of almost uh, using that work as an inspiration um, from standpoint of the ideas and formally for uh, was it possible to transfer those ideas into architecture? For me, Richard Serra was probably the most important of all of the uh, artists at that point. Um, there was a, a write, there's a writer, Yves Lambois, who wrote a, a piece in, in early um, October, the journal October, called A Picturesque uh, Stroll Around Clara Clara. And Clara Clara was a piece that Sarah had uh, made on the Tuileries in Paris. And in that article, um, Bois started to describe how uh, Sarah's work was this kind of intermediary. This, um, he, he would talk about it as a kind of barometer almost for the context. Um, and an intermediary that, an armature of, of experience and, and vision that would allow the um, the viewer to not only understand the piece, but maybe more importantly to understand the context around it um, in a different way. And uh, I became incredibly interested in that because I thought that idea of architecture as this intermediary, uh, it, it gave architecture the ability to take on different levels of complexity. Um, that it wasn't purely about form uh, and the aesthetics of form, as important as that is. And it wasn't also uh, absolving ourselves of um, uh, the um, uh, relationship to, um, to the individual. Uh, so somehow that, that uh, if you could make an architecture that existed in that realm, um, maybe there was the possibility of, of expanding that to an idea about uh, a new way of working and, and planning in the city. And that sounds, maybe that's a bit abstract, but for me, it was, uh, I, I remember reading that piece and thinking, um, for me, this was the key. Somehow, I didn't completely get it, but this was, this was a way into, uh, a lot of what um, I felt implicitly architecture could do and that I was interested in. Mm. I think I know, I think I understand what you mean. And I'd be really curious to find that essay and read it now. But I think the, the kind of analogy of a, of a barometer or armature is interesting. And um, it kind of makes me think more about the experience of, of happening upon the Star Apartments yesterday, for example, um, and feeling like it is a kind of charged sculptural object in and of itself, which a lot of your work seems to be. I mean, generally speaking, a Michael Maltzen building is formally ingenious on some front, 
and very often, if not always, stark white, mm. uh, has a very tight skin, flush windows. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of, um, I guess, sculptor's hand at play, or a sense of authorship there. Um, and then it invites you to read the building on those terms. But at the same time, going back to the star again, the context of being in Skid Row, directly across from a, a police station, in an area of intense poverty, um, and then kind of noticing for the first time the second plane of uh, social engagement, you start to understand, I guess, the complexities that the building is pointing at. So it is doing, it's doing that kind of work that you're describing. That was, that was one of the things that I learned um, from, uh, uh, from Sarah's work, that uh, the sculptural form is the way that you, that's the way in. That's what you, uh, allows you to make that first connection. Uh, but then it's also, uh, it's also the device that creates um, all of, or, or allows the other relationships, especially space, space relationships, uh, to be made. I, I've said this before, and, and it sounds a little, I don't know, maybe even cliched, but I am more actually interested in space than I am in form, because it's in the space it's in space that um, the full complexity of architecture actually exists. That's where the experience um, connects to the viewer, the inhabitant. Uh, that's where the relationships between the thing that you've made and the character and context of the things around it, that's, that's where uh, the debate and the conversation actually takes place. The form, for me, is uh, a way of uh, uh, both capturing a certain amount of attention, but even more importantly, starting to form the space around it. Uh, so in a case like Star Apartments, or for instance, a very early project, Inner City Arts, uh, a campus of many, many buildings, each of those buildings intentionally has um, its own formal geometric aesthetic presence. But uh, what, what um, is really the most important thing is the way that they begin to relate to each other and start to create a dialogue across, across space. Um, and that's something that, again, going back to your earlier question about um, in, uh, um, that 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 moment uh, for me uh, in my education, looking towards art, uh, that's what a lot of the sculptors taught me. Um, as even more, I, I was able to understand it uh, and the impact of space from that work more than I was able to at the time understand it from. Um, uh, the, the, the long canon, historical canon of architecture. Hmm. So I think having conversations like this, we kind of realize how, um, how language becomes an, an integral tool in a way to making sense of buildings and making sense of space. And there's a, there's a lot of nuance and complexity 
uh, in the way that you are able to describe the work you do. And I wanted to ask you about writing, because um, there is a lot of you know, published work of yours and about your work, obviously, but you write a lot as well about your work and on your own terms. Um, and so, for example, you published you know, abstractly thoughts on the phenomenon of transformation. Um, you've written notes on working with existing buildings. You've written an essay on model making called After Narrative and Beyond Mimesis. And there, it feels like writing itself is a kind of experimental tool for you. Which is funny because I never, th it's funny that you say that because as you're saying that, I think you're talking about some, I don't think of myself as a writer. Uh, and yet, uh, I don't think of myself as a writer. Um, but uh, there is something that happens when you're trying to write about an idea uh, that uh, is very different than, than trying to make it in architecture, make, make those ideas in architecture. And I think the reason I don't think of myself as a writer is that I don't write for um, an audience, which I, I don't know, maybe it's wrong, but I always think that's a little bit the writer's job, or to clarify it for, uh, for an audience. Uh, it's, I'm writing those things um, in a way to try to um, distill it or clarify it for myself. Um, so each one of those has been, has been really about me trying to figure out uh, some idea or some, um, some uh, complexity that um, I'm, I'm struggling with. Uh, when, I worked, when we did the project No More Play um, uh, with uh, Jessica Varner, um, a lot of that was, was trying to find a, a new way of um, uh, describing the city, a city like Los Angeles. So this might be a good point just to introduce the book again. It's a book of interviews with um, figures in the city of Los Angeles, uh, and those include the photographer Catherine Opie, the architect and academic Sarah Whiting, the landscape architect Charles Waldheim, the postmodern um, post architectural theorist Charles Jenks, you interviewed as well for it. Mm -hmm. There's an urbanist, Edward Soja. The uh, Jenks interview. Jenks interview was, was a lot of fun. And then also the writer Jeff Mena, who we'll be meeting um, very shortly. Yeah, he was terrific. Um, and what's interesting about this book is there's absolutely no projects of yours in it, mm -hmm. and there's no mention of the practice, really. Mm -hmm. It's not about the practice. It is truly about the city as, as seen through a series of conversations with people who work in it or think about it. And I wondered, this is research, really. Mm -hmm. This is deep research about the place in which you work. Right. What kind of instigated that project? I... Uh, I, like many, I mean, so many people, um, had thought about Los Angeles um, to some extent through one of the lenses was through Rainer Banham's um, Four Ecologies book, um, which is one of the quintessential um, uh, writings about, about L.A. But I also felt that the city that he knew and wrote about had changed, um, had evolved, 
uh, and was was different. And in my mind, I kept thinking, how would you how would you um, update Bantam, or how, what would you do to try to give people uh, an equivalent um, under type of experience with Los Angeles, um, but um, uh, to do it on Los Angeles's terms. And the thing about Bantam's book that I, I think is, is, is extraordinary is that he's writing as, as a critic and a theorist and, a, and an urbanist, um, but he's doing it in a seemingly um, non-academic way. He's, uh, he's really writing a kind of personal narrative uh, about the city. It's uh, as much um, his own observations uh, that um, feels uh, like, a, like a, a very real way to try to describe a city that has often eluded hard critical analysis. Uh, that the complexities of this city don't seem to um, be described or don't seem to resonate when you try to do the, the traditional urban analysis and, and diagrams and, and metric-based analysis that you often see describe other cities very well. Um, I wondered if you could do that in a more contemporary way. Could you um, could you, did the, was the form important uh, to describing a different city, the, a different form of a city in a different way? So a big part of it was uh, to create, to see if you could curate a series of different voices um, and, uh, and in a way almost parallel the um, the heterotopic reality of this city with many cultures, many voices, many different opinions, um, or at least allude to that diversity in the form of the book. Um, I had this idea that we would do the book as a little bit like that, um, that kid's game, telephone, where you whisper one thing to somebody and then down the line, and, and um, each time they reinterpret for themselves in a way they, they add their interpretation on top of the previous interpretation and they get it wrong. It comes around and it's what they say was said is completely different, but, uh, but picks up the nuances from all of those different individuals. And we, we sort of did that book. A lot of each time we talked to uh, the successive, successive uh, interviewee, uh, the questions that we asked were really based on what the previous person had just told us. And so we tried to build this idea, a similar type of idea in, in, uh, in the book. I didn't want um, our work to be present in the, um, in the book because I thought that um, It was, it was, it had its own narrative. It would have skewed um, the interpretation that somebody might bring to the book um, if our work was present in it. Um, and it, it was, as you said, it was about the city. It wasn't really about me or us. 
The way that the book opens, uh, Jessica Varner is explaining that perhaps in contemporary, in the contemporary condition of distraction and fantasy, it's more important now than ever to learn how to listen. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. I, I still think that's, um, I, I, what she said I think is still absolutely right. And I think it's so remarkable to hear that from, essentially from the office of an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, to me, I, fi I found it so inspiring to hear that um, and to be reminded that um, this kind of documentary approach to understanding uh, is always or can be folded into the practice of design. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I guess just as a way of ending, I want to thank you for allowing us to listen to you now. Well, thank you for um, having the conversation. It's... Uh I've enjoyed it. Great. So at this point, we can kind of open things up. Everyone's looking a bit sunbeaten and information overloaded, but um, it's almost 4.30 now. Uh, if there's a few questions. Um, Did any of that make sense? A little bit? Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. How long have you been here in the city? This is day two. Oh my God. So the jet lag is, yeah, here I'm we sure go. you guys are like, <laughs> when I go your way, the second day is the worst, always the worst. Uh, so I'm, I'm sympathetic. Um, Can I ask you about the star arms? This is the one building you was like beam so you're supposed to look at. We'll just pass this around as we ask. And um, <clears throat> the, the interesting thing, I think, and, and this is, in, in the context of a European perspective, is that there's, well, various things. I mean, it, you, you seem, and having just looked at one Santa Fe, that there's, you, it looks like you use structure, mm -hmm. uh, by which I mean sort of substantial bits of mm -hmm. construction structure, as a, a dynamic and a kind of uh, invigorating device, as in, so as, it seems to be you know, people talk about things like how would you dignify somebody's life and so a European perspective right now would be in a way not necessarily to turn to, tradi to tradition but m maybe perhaps more to look at craft and technique mm -hmm. and I'm not thinking of kind of timber but I'm just thinking about you know, how things are put together very carefully and, and, and in a sense um, the Star Apartments sort of avoids issues of technique, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite elementary, absolutely. it's structural. It's very raw. It reminds me of um, the Theresenhauser uh, architecture that you know, goes, dates back to sort of, well, constructivism mm. and keeps manifesting itself right through the 20th century, at least until the sort of late 60s, early 70s, mm. which is, you know, when you stand underneath it, that's very dramatic and mm. kind of, it, it, as an architect at least, it's kind of engaging and inspiring. But you might say it's kind of slightly alarming, and mm -hmm. you, know, you know, so you can read it a number of different ways. Right. What it also does is, once you're in it, it, it kind of creates, I sense, something of a crucible, in the way that a lot of those kind of post-war housing schemes all over the world, in a way, we're trying to create some type of theatre, some mm -hmm. type of um, landscape in microcosm, which was by its very nature social. Right. Um, anyway, I'm sort of talking it, but there is deep down in there a question, I suppose, which is, is that, is that thing about how, how do you think it is understood, mm. I suppose, perhaps by the people who live in that building? Uh, 
I, that's always, I think that's always one of the fundamental questions for architecture is, is, is the thing that you made um, connecting in some way to people's lives? And, and I, I'm, um, I'm interested in, I, I'd like for people certainly who are living in the buildings to feel like um, those buildings are uh, ennobling at some level of, for them, that it, it, um, it has a positive impact on their life personally. But I'm also interested in the buildings um, uh, being provocative and forcing questions, not only for the people who live there, but more, even maybe more importantly for the people who visit or, or move around the building, that, um, uh, that uh, you connect to buildings often, I think, by the buildings asking questions that you're forced to try to um, answer, if you're aware at all. Uh, and this is, this is an unfair caricature, uh, caricature, caricature of craft. And I'll probably, if anybody hears this, I'll get beat up about it. But I think in a way, one of the ideas about, one of the things about craft is that um, it answers the questions for you, uh, or it has a tendency to answer the questions for you because it's, um, it's working at such a high form of the art uh, and is such a complete um, idea of, uh, of the creator, of the architect, of the sculptor, that the most that you can do is, is appreciate it. Uh, and you can appreciate it at a very high level, but that's about the uh, extent of your um, even visceral connection to it. I'm interested in work that uh, in a way has, has an openness to it. Um, sometimes, especially here in LA, <clears throat> where it's more possible and there's a longer history of making a, a raw or work, um, I'm, I try to get at it in that way, that the buildings, it's not that I'm interested in the buildings not being finished, but that, uh, that they're open enough that it, it, it allows for your life to expand into all of those places that aren't complete somehow, haven't been completed for you. And I, I do think that, um, uh, I do think architecture represents, and I think people understand or at least intuit what it's trying to represent and react to that. And if they're reacting to that openness with um, the ability to uh, not feel like it's, um, that the architecture is either controlling um, or circumscribing their world, then that's a positive thing. So what you just said is so, the timing of this is just brilliant because we just come from the Hollyhock House and we were standing outside it, sort of having roughly these same thoughts, which is this, and it was stemming from me thinking, actually there's very, there's very little critical thought about Frank Wright's work in a way that all sorts of other hundred year old architects, still people revisit the work and are curious. And it's, it seems it's for that very reason. It's like 
It's sort of battened down, complete, crafted work. It's, you know, there seems to be... It's like it's not open. It's it's infallible. It's not infallible, but it has that sort of appearance of infallibility that means that it's like... Why do I? You know, why would I even bother to? No, I think that's a term. I think that 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 term, infallible, uh, is uh, that that's a very useful that's a very useful term because um, whether it it got all the way there or not, as you said, isn't so much in the end the point. The point is that that was something it was trying to communicate, uh, and. And I think it's done that successfully. And I think you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to uh, uh, read our moment into that work. And that's always the, the um, I think, the important thing to try to do as, as creators, which is different than historians. You know, we use architecture as a, as a catalyst, um, that's where the, the speculative term is important as well. We use it, and we should use it, as a way of asking questions about our own work, about what's possible, or how to go beyond that, um, or what does that mean, and how did it? Uh, how do you uh, also have an effect in culture, in society, uh, and? Uh, the architecture has to be able to allow that. Um, that's what keeps work, I think, contemporary. It's not the style. Uh, it's not the aesthetic um, which keeps something a, a part of a contemporary moment. It's all of the other stuff. Um, the aesthetic goes away. It's, it's one of the reasons why I've... I've I, I was going to say, the aesthetic is partly technological as well, isn't it? Um, and, I, and just listening to you two talking um, reminded me, I mean, first of all, you, you can see in a way how it's slightly, I mean, I'm going to just talk about Star Apartments because it's the one that I can, I feel like I can talk about. It has the connotations of like an, of an oil rig. There's, there's a primary structure and there's a secondary structure and that's both very pragmatic but dynamic and playful. But also slightly reminds me of, of years ago visiting... Um, the, the, the Anastasi Indian um, cave dwellings of Betatarkin and Mesa Verde, where the, the rock is making the microclimate. And when you were talking about you know, form being a lesser part than space, um, because you, again, you've got that hierarchy of tectonics. If you sort of think of the, the equivalent of, um, in, in the case of the oil rig, you know, the, the, the primary structure is this big steel structure that, that, that forms the, you know, holds the platform up that you then stack the, the um, sort of containers on. In the case of Betatarkin, it's the massive sort of stone um, form stroke volume that creates the space then to construct the smaller, the, the village, as it were. Um, but then it makes the space. That is the space that, that it's the image that when we were um, planning this trip, that, that there's, there's one reading of that building, which is all of those external, formal uh, readings. And then there's that one of, of the kind of 
it looks like it's a relatively protected, covered plateau, uh, as in a kind of terrace, mm. which which ha- has connotations of you know, being a microclimate, being social space, being all of these things, which is very generous, actually quite sort of maybe paternalistic is not the right word, but you know, mm. as in it is, um, it's a it's a it's a kind of putting your arms around people mm. type space, right. uh, which is not necessarily the, the thing that you would read, expect right. to find from the fall. I think that's right. Well, the fact that you, uh, you can have, you can simultaneously have, you can interpret it as an oil rig and as a cl- cliff dwelling, which I think are both beautiful images to, that relate to that project. Um, then maybe it's working. Um, that allows it to live on, right, doesn't it? Because right. you can read it and reread it, right. and it, it's more than... You're completing it. You're completing the reading of it. You're completing the interpretation of it, or you're adding to the interpretation of it, which is, um, as opposed to the building saying, this is, the, this is it, this is the way you get to understand this building, and if you can agree or disagree, but this is it. And uh, I'm not interested, you know, that's, again, to go back to someone like Sarah's work, Richard Sarah's work, you know, there's a a sculptor who um, is certainly not shy and is not a retiring personality and makes insistent, big, significant gestures. And yet, what's really profound about that work is the way you capture the cornice of a building uh, from the 19th century above the sculptor, or the way that you see two people passing by each other in relationship where they appear and disappear and, uh, to the tilting of, of the form, or the way that the light um, changes across it uh, and animates it over the course of the day. It's, it feels alive with the things around it, as opposed to trying to um, uh, somehow say uh, it's alive by its own its own gestures, and that um, I, uh, I I think that's a that's a really interesting space to I, I find to try to to work in, especially given uh, the dynamic of our culture today. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Sly Fifth Ave. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Michael Maltzen and his team, and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.